it's not easy to do, but I think that's why the high achievers uh, are using this for their success is because they're actually using time to their advantage. Hello everybody and welcome back to Mentors. Today we have on Corey Poirier, also known as that speaker guy, but he's way more than just a speaker guy. He's a multi-TEDx speaker, host of the top-rated Conversations with Passion radio show, columnist for the Entrepreneur and Progress magazine. He has over 900 articles in print and he's interviewed over 4,000 world-class leaders. And he just came out with a new book called The Book of Why and How, and he's kind enough to give me a copy. So if you want one, you can find out how to do that in this podcast. And in this episode, we talk about leaving your comfort zones, how to do that, a step-by-step way to discover your passions or things you've never thought about trying before. And because Cory Poirier is a renowned speaker, we talk about speaking, speaking with persuasion and how to be a great storyteller, conveying your audience. And lastly, we discuss what Corey has learned over the course of all of his interviews. And guys, this entire podcast, I heavily enjoyed the conversation. I hope you guys enjoy it too. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Mentors. Today, we have on Corey Poirier. Corey, thank you so much for being on. Oh, thank you for having me, Ava. I'm really, uh, really excited to uh, make it all happen. No, of course. And so first up, first off where I want to get with you is you do a lot of speaking gigs, right? But a lot of people I know for a fact are very afraid, terrified of speaking. So how did you start with that? Were you ever fearful in the first place or did you constantly just throw yourself in? <laughs> so I was absolutely hundred percent terrified so much so that my first speaking engagement I was invited to talk about entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs. In fact, I was about 17, I think, with my first business. And I got invited to do this talk and I delivered this talk and I don't remember a word of what I said. And I asked people afterwards, you know, what did I say? Did I say anything wrong? And they said, I don't know, but you were some excited saying it. Uh, but I was <laughs> just covered in, in sweat. I was terrified. And then I walked away from speaking again for like five years and then I had an opportunity to overcome the fear by getting onto a stand-up comedy stage and I did that and I bombed horribly I had another bad night but I kept going (laughs) back and and to be honest so it was a matter of I just kept forcing it even though I was truly terrified from the first day how did you keep forcing yourself to do that I don't think most people would do that I think a lot of people would stop and never do it again (laughs) So, you know what I did? I actually told myself, I looked at uh, people that I had run into that said, you know, I could have done this or I was going to do that. And I heard, you know, I, I could saw, see in their eyes that they were living with regret. You know, people that wanted to do stuff or had these opportunities but never took advantage. And so what I kept doing is I kept telling myself, I don't want to be that person who ends up being like 65 years old at the bar saying, I could have done this and I was going to do that but hadn't done any of it. So it was more the fear of not living my life fully that I just kept reminding myself that and kind of forcing myself that way to keep getting back up, whether it was on the stage to perform standup or then to, uh, to speak in front of audiences. It really just came back to keep reminding myself that if I don't do this, I know I'm going to live with regret. So it, you know, it doesn't make it easier to do it that way, but 
it, it made it so that as long as I kept reminding myself that it was just that little bit extra that it took to get me to keep going back. And then the other thing that happened is because I survived, because I went up on stage, but I actually survived. <laughs> and I thought that it was going to be the end of the world doing it. That was another big motivator because I was like, no matter how bad it was, I still survived. And I was led to believe, oh my, you could, you know, die up on stage and, and I didn't. So it was a matter of both of those things just kept giving me that extra, that extra little oomph that I needed to keep me going back. That's, that in itself is incredible because I feel like most people or what would happen in general is we chase a lot of comfort. Most people, all their lives will chase comfort and they go, well, once I'm comfortable, I'm okay. But you, you understood the fact that if I am comfortable, things won't be okay down the line. And so taking that risk now and that opportunity now is amazing. And the fact that, well, now you've interviewed 4,000 or probably now over 4,000 thought leaders and you are a founder of your own program um, and you have so many radio talk shows and you are a columnist for Forbes and the entrepreneur, that's way more better than most people would ever think to do because you didn't chase safety. Yeah, it's, you know, I did, I did, I, well, I didn't come by this knowledge, let's say on day one, but I did learn over the years that it's much easier um, to conquer your fears and step outside your comfort zone once you, once you start taking action. And what a lot of people don't realize is you can actually take small action. So in other words, let's say if we use the example of stand-up, you could actually, like I, I mean, it's a whole story behind, I, I got up on the stage and I was tricked into being there and I, you know, <laughs> I ended up jumping up because I was, I just figured if you're going to do it, you better do it first and all that kind of stuff. But what uh, I've learned since is that what I could have done, and you know, if I wanted to be a stand-up, let's say, what I could have done differently is I could have actually started things like reading about stand-up comedy, reading books on stand-up. I could have went to the local comedy club and started talking to other comics. I could have studied comics on TV and studied what they did well, and so on and so forth. And those would all be small little actions that would be getting me closer to getting on stage. And if I rewarded myself after all those little mini actions that didn't seem like big deals at the time, eventually after I've stacked up you know, 10 of those, eventually you realize that, oh my God, I'm already outside my comfort zone and getting on the stage now isn't as big of a deal. So you could apply that to anything, whether it's speaking, whether it's writing a book, whether it's taking a certain class. If you figure out what the small steps you need to take are to get to the big step, if you take those little steps, what you're doing is you're inching closer without realizing it and without it seeming like such a big thing till eventually your comfort zone is much wider and bigger. And what I have discovered, back to your point too, about um, realize that being only in my comfort zone wasn't going to take me where I wanted to go. I have discovered that most people discover their passion and purpose just outside their comfort zone. So that's kind of how I tackled it. I just kept taking small actions. And once I learned that it was a lot easier to take those small actions until you were close to the big one that made all the difference. So I think people can take that approach and it would be a lot easier for most people than jumping on the stage. First thing. I've never, I've never thought about it like that. That's crazy. Cause most of the time you want to think of it as like step one, step two, step three, and now I'm going to be a success or like, you know, all these steps are going to be scary and I have to go through all these leaps and bounds to get it. But I think when you break it down and like you said, reward yourself, that's going to be, really beneficial because um i don't know how much you know about the brain i really love it but when you reward yourself that's dopamine so you keep giving yourself little hits of dopamine and you keep wanting more of it but how or why 
why do you think a lot of people find their passion there, like right outside the comfort zone? Because most people go like, oh, find your passion, find your passion, find what you love. And most people already have things that they like, but not what they love. How do you develop and grow that passion? Or how do you get out of your comfort zone too? So I guess there's a couple of things. I guess, you know, when, when you asked, why do I think it's just outside your path, what's just outside your comfort zone, or in some cases, it's way outside your comfort zone. I actually think that's on purpose. I think for whatever, you know, the, the, whoever de- decided to design it that way, I think it's, it's actually done on purpose so that we have to stretch ourselves and we have to grow. And if it was inside our comfort zones, how many people would take a step outside their comfort zone? Most people wouldn't. So I think it's almost, the, it's the reward for taking those steps, but it's also so that you will stretch yourself and you will step outside your comfort zone rather than just staying in that little cocoon where it's, you know, where it's nice and comfortable. So that's why I think that's the case. In terms of discovering that purpose or passion, here's a a little exercise, Ava, that I, you know, I take people through and what I find is it shortcuts the process for them. It doesn't mean you're going to find your passion in a day but there's a lot of people go through their whole life without ever discovering it. So if you can use an exercise and discover yours much quicker, I think it's definitely worth it. And so the exercise I tell people to take is to take a pen and a piece of paper. And, you know, when I say that, you know, I realize that uh, depending on the generational side, some people may not use pen and paper at all anymore. I use my phone for most things, but when it comes to getting my brain working, I like using pen and paper. And so I suggest that people actually write down the things that they they love, the things that they really enjoy doing, and when they do it, they don't even watch the clock, and put a list together of those things, also the things that you do when money isn't involved. So, you know, the things you would love to do and you would do even when money's not an issue. And then I, I say add to that list the things that you think you're really good at. And so the idea is you're building a list of possible areas that are maybe hints towards your passion or they may be your passion. And let's say you have a list now of seven or eight things. It could be photography, like taking pictures. It could be, um, it could be playing music, any of those things, but you have a list. And then I tell people to go and put them in the right priority. So what do you love the most? And what are the things on that list that if you don't do them again, it won't bother you that much. So you want to have obviously the top ones in order on the top of the list. And then really at that point, it's just a matter of figuring out what are the steps you have to take to try that. So let's say it was uh, playing guitar, since I mentioned music. Well, you could take steps like you could get books on chords and how to play guitar. You could take music lessons and learn and start learning how to play guitar that way. You could buy a guitar. (laughs) That'd be a good step. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, so you could take these little steps and eventually what'll happen is you'll get closer and closer. And then let's say you're taking music lessons. Eventually, next thing you know, you're playing guitar. And what'll happen is ultimately, as you start doing it, you'll probably find out pretty quickly if it's your one of your passions or your main passion. And so, of course, once, you, once you've hit that stage, that's, that's where you want to be. As you're going along the way, much the same way I mentioned about outside your comfort zone, those little steps like buying a guitar, taking music lessons, for some people, that'd be a fear to go sit with somebody and play music in front of them. So you want to reward mm-hmm. yourself, like you mentioned the dopamine, you want to reward yourself at those, each of those steps, because that's what'll keep you going. That's, you'll get excited about wanting those rewards. And then what happens, like I say, after you tried, let's say the top one in your list and, and you've taken the actions to get there, then you'll know if it's your passion. If it's not, then you go down to number two on the list. And this little exercise of just putting a list together of what could be your passion and then trying them, taking the actual actions, in my experience, helps people find their comfort zone 
months, if not years sooner than if they just leave it to happy accident. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that because what I've been, what I've been asking myself recently is self-discovery. Yeah. I'm a 17 year old, just turned 17 actually. And you don't really know who you are yet or you do. And you need to go out life through exploring because everyone goes, oh, you know, explore, explore. But no one gives a definite way to go about exploring. And I think you just did. So that is, that is very helpful because not only do you dissect what you like, well, actually, how would you go about exploring other things? Maybe you never even thought about photography and that ends up being your passion. Is there any way you can start deviating to other subjects? Well, so here's, so here's the interesting part. Let's say that you go through, I mean, I'll answer this in two ways, but let's say you go through that exercise I mentioned and either you don't find your passion. I mean, let's go that route. You don't find your passion there. What I would say, I mean, cause everybody has a passion and I always, I say find, but I actually think you're uncovering it like a, an onion. I think it's deeper down into us. <laughs> have to discover it. I believe we all have it. It's all there. Some people discover it real early on its own automatically. Others have to work for it. But what I would say is that uh, if you don't find it in those areas, you have to do one of two things. One is you do it just by, because that's who you are. And the other one, you have to do it uh, to find your passion, but it's, you have to actually be an explorer. So when I say that, what I mean is you have to be willing to try new things. So I'll give you, for instance, for example, with me, my passion area is speaking. No question. That's, I have a lot of passions, but that's the core one. Well, the hint, you know, the area, like you said about if photography is not your passion or your passion, it is your passion. And that's not one in your list. How can you find it by accident? Well, how I found speaking was through stand-up comedy. And so what happened was I put comedy on my list thinking that that might be my biggest love. And I tried it and I liked it. Okay. But it had a lot of things I didn't like about it, like hecklers and people drinking while you're performing. <laughs> yelling stuff up to the stage. But so what happened was I discovered speaking because of stand-up and speaking at all the things I liked about comedy and didn't have the things I didn't like. So how did I find that? It was by being willing to try new things. So it goes right back to that expanding your comfort zone. You have to be willing. If somebody says, hey, we should try this, and it's something you think you'd want to do, but you're only saying no out of fear, then you have to find a way to bust past that fear. Because if you're not finding your passion by going through that exercise I mentioned, or it hasn't come across to you yet, or you don't know what it is, then the only other way to find it really is either A, to be an adventurer because you want to be, or B, uh, because you have to be to find it. I completely agree. Sorry, I like to internalize and think about that. I like that. I like that idea because you started off with comedy, but then you found something else and you keep like finding, cause, um, actually I was talking about this other day to a friend. Uh, I'm a swimmer. I've been swimming for like nine years competitively and suddenly I don't really want to do it anymore and I'm still in it, but you deviate by having someone else come on to your life. Or like I had a friend who's like, you know what? You should try rugby and I'm about to try that and we're going to see how it goes. It sounds crazy and intense, but it's all, like, I feel like it's all a fun nature to it too. I don't know if you need to constantly be aware, like having to think, oh, this is like, I'm trying to look for my passion. This might be my passion. Or if you should go about and have fun with it and be like, and be uh, carefree. And maybe in that like not carefreeness, you can find another thing. Yeah, I think it's, I, I really believe it's what works for you. But I, I think if somebody's struggling and there's nothing appearing to them, you know, they can try that exercise. It's certainly not going to hurt. And here's the cool thing. 
you're putting things on a list that you like to do anyway, or you think you'd like to do. So that what's really wrong with going through that list and having fun anyway, even if it doesn't turn out to be your passion, these are things you think you'd like, or, or you do like. So imagine you get to learn how to play guitar. You get to learn, and I'm using those as examples, but you get to learn photography. I mean, even if those aren't your passion areas, what's really wrong with, you know, having adventures like that and excitement in your life. Um, you know, an example for me, I'm obviously a person that likes to explore. So, you know, I practice yoga, I meditate, I, I jumped out of planes, I went surfing, even though I can't swim. Those are my passion areas, but they're areas that can bring some passion into my life. And, you know, maybe I had to explore those to eventually, I actually fell into my passion. And that's how I discovered there is a better system for doing it. But I, it, I, w I would never take back the way I discovered it. And I think I agree completely with you that if you find it just by having fun, then that's, that's even better. It's just that some people never find their passion in their whole life and they don't adventure and they don't step outside their comfort zone. So I think you got to do one of those things if you want to ultimately find it. No, and I love that. And the fact that you're talking about like all these other things you do around it that make you feel incredible like jumping out of planes, how, like, how do you stay that curious and that excited about life? Because I'm not going to lie, sometimes I find people that are just, I don't want to say dead, but they're very zombie-like. They go throughout the day. And they get in there, they have a job, they do work, or you're a student, this is, this is my, whew. you or you're a student and you get your honors diploma and you do, and you do all your homework and that's that. You never go outside, you never have that curiosity and you never find not only that passion, but those really fun things. You know, it's one of those things that in some ways you have to, if you don't have that in you already, you have to find a way to sort of trigger that. So, uh, you know, whether, and we talked about rewards a couple of times, whether you have to trick yourself into it by giving yourself rewards for taking these little actions, that's one way, but another way, and this, so this is the hard part. It's, you know, what's, what's first, right? The cart or the horse, as they say, or the chicken mm -hmm. or the egg. Like it's the challenge is if you find your passion, what I've noticed is people that find their passion, they become bigger explorers. They want to take those bigger steps. They want to do different things. But we're talking here about the fact that some people don't have their passion yet. So I think sometimes if you don't have your passion yet, you may have to trick yourself into doing some of these things, whether you, somebody else talks you into them, whether you, like, I, I really like rewards because I do believe they work. So whether, and rewards, by the way, when people think of rewards, you know, just so I can put a name on it, that could be that you uh, say, you know what, normally you eat really healthy, but I'm going to eat, you know, all the junk I can on Saturday if I take this step outside my comfort zone on, on Thursday, you know, so it could be anything like that. It could be, I'm going to go to a show with my friends that I normally wouldn't splurge on myself to do if I do this on Wednesday. So the rewards can be, I mean, the rewards can be as simple as ice cream, <laughs> going in for ice cream. It doesn't have to, because sometimes people, I, I think, especially if you talk about people that are, you know, in the you know corporate world, they think of rewards, they think like, oh, I'm going to get a trophy and stuff like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying give yourself some sort of reward. Maybe you love reading, so you buy yourself a book every week as long as you take one step outside your comfort zone. So I guess the answer, Ava, to me is either you reward yourself and, and either trick yourself or convince yourself to, to take a step every now and then. You don't have to rush into it. Just do one thing a week that makes you uncomfortable and then reward yourself for doing it. I believe once you start getting a taste for, you know what, I really enjoyed that one thing. You may not like every one thing that you try, but I really enjoyed that thing. 
I, what, I would have missed out on that if I wouldn't have taken any steps or if I would have just stayed and, and done homework only and done, you know, everything related to school only. So I think that's one option. And then, like I said, the other option is if you can use a system to find your passion area, I think you'll find the more passionate a person is, the more adventurous they are and the more they're willing to step outside their comfort zone. So I think once again, it's either or. Yeah, no. And that's definitely something I feel like we need to hear nowadays. So one, thank you for that. And thank you for having it so clearly laid out because a lot of people, there's this ambiguity or there's this mist to passion, like, Oh, find it, discover it, work for it. But you're like, how? And you, and you, you really helped dissect that. So thank you so much for that. But I really, and I really want to talk more about your passion and speaking. So one of the things I have not figured out how to do yet, especially on stage is how to tell a good story and, and how to all in all be a good speaker, which is probably a, big question that can go any direction but how how do you do both things so so i'll give you i mean i'll give you the this because you mentioned it is a big question with a big answer but i'll give you the short answer first and then we can decide if we need to dive deeper uh so on the storytelling side what i've discovered over the years is there really is there's both an art to storytelling but there's also a skill and so there's certain elements of a story that if you at least work these elements in you'll be closer. So what I mean is some people will knock it out of the park with these elements, other people, it'll just get them closer, but either way, it's certainly not gonna hurt you. So I'll give you an example. It, when I say that, what I mean is that uh, in a story, you should have a hero and a villain. So every story, every good story, usually has a hero or a villain. And so what do I mean by that? A hero and a villain, when people hear that, they think people. It doesn't have to be a person. You know, it doesn't have to be Voldemort versus Harry Potter. <laughs> like, it doesn't have to be that kind of dry. It can be the hero in a story. Could be, let, I'll give you an example. It could, could be, uh, the villain could be your, your homework or <laughs> your, your exams. And the hero could be the system you use for making it easier to study, if that makes sense. So No, totally. Trust me. I, I'm trying to write an essay. It's, yeah. <laughs> so good stories always have both, hero and a villain. Whatever, you know, whatever that looks like in your story. But it could be a person and it doesn't have to be. Just remember it that way. Another thing that good stories usually have is they usually have three central points. So, uh, and this came from my world of stand-up comedy. Comics learned this a long time ago, but people usually only remember three things you tell them. So the idea is to build your, your talk around, let's say, three ideas. And those three points or ideas can each be a story let's say, as an example. So you could use, and I'll give you a, an example just at the top of my head, but let's say I wanted to uh, tell a, uh, a story about a musician. Let's say a band, doesn't matter who it is, but let's say it was um, Ed Sheeran. I'll use him as an example. So let's say I wanted to tell a story about being a musician like Ed Sheeran. Well, what I could do is I could uh, say, okay, he's the focus of my talk or him as a musician. And then I would say, okay, what are three points about him or about being a musician could I bring in? And so let's say one of those points is, uh, let's, I'm just saying an example, let's say where he, you know, where he was, where he was born. And then you could, maybe you've been on a trip there. So then your story could be about a trip that you took there. And then you tie it up with how that relates to Ed Sheeran as an example. But the, the takeaway is there should be three messages or three key points to your, your overall talk and then you need to figure out how to make each of those three things a story and so if it's a story you're creating from scratch then of course you're going to want to uh, figure out how does it relate to you so you know I'll give I'll give you another example let's say it was your talk was on health and wellness and maybe you want to talk about yoga meditation and maybe you want to talk about eating right 
So now you got to figure out what are three stories that I can build, you know, three stories I can build around that talk. And let's say meditation. So meditation, you go, okay, I, I want to tell a story about meditating. And let's say you meditate at once and you couldn't stop your mind from thinking. And so then you quit on meditation. So now you're trying it again and your story's about that. Well, within that story, you now can talk about, um, you could talk about, for example, again, what was the hero and the villain? So uh, the villain was your busy mind. Mm. And the hero is, in this case, let's say you went back to meditation and tried it again. Maybe the hero is somebody who's now guiding you or teaching you meditation. Maybe you jumped on your phone and started listening to guided meditation on YouTube or an app. And that's the hero in the story. So the villain might be your mind that won't slow down and the hero now becomes. So your story now is about that journey that you took and how now all of a sudden that app, the hero, has helped you now become a meditator and what meditation has done for you. So th this is top of my head, so I'm not thinking this really fully through. If I was actually working this all the way through, I would go a lot deeper for myself. But just off the top of my head, you know, that's an example of how you can start with a talk use three stories to get your point across. And then within that story, you want to have a hero and a villain. Uh, within the stories as well, Ava, you'll want to have things that make people laugh. So you want to have maybe humor. Uh, if not humor, you want to have something that makes a person think. Uh, the idea is to engage the audience. So something that people think about, something that makes them laugh, uh, or you want to have uh, as a universal thing. So something we all can relate to. So relatability, humor, any of those elements that really get people emotionally charged. Oh, you want to have emotional connection. Maybe that's it. Maybe the story is something about a hard time you have, which is why your mind won't slow down. Uh, or maybe you're battling something like ADHD or something, and that's why your mind won't slow down. So that's a universal element that mostly everybody can relate to. And so I hope that makes sense. But here on a villain, three points and elements that pull people in, like being universal, relatable, humor, or uh, stuff that makes us think and engages us. That's really, in a nutshell, what I try to work into every story. No, yeah, I totally understand. Actually, another one of my questions was going to be like, how do you get your audience to feel? How do you try to convey certain emotions? But it sounds like it's all those, the universal topics and bringing them together. Absolutely. It really comes back to relatability. If they can relate to the situation, then for them, for, for an audience, that's what pulls them in. And it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to get somebody to be able to relate to your situation or story, but there's always some relatable element within a story. And, you know, to give you an, I'll give you a quick example, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. So I was, uh, my girlfriend and I were in Seattle um, a few years ago. We were traveling across North America, driving in a car, me, her, and the dog I mentioned to you off air. Uh, yeah, of course. Rocking. And uh, so we loaded up the car, we travel across the country. And um, we stopped in Seattle and we went to Jimi Hendrix's gravesite. And so we were there at the gravesite. And so Jimi Hendrix, for people listening who maybe don't know him, he's a musician that died, I think, in 1969, I want to say. And um, so 45 plus years ago. And so we went to his gravesite. And one thing that was really cool is there were probably four groups of people that visited his gravesite in an hour we were there. And so it made me realize that this guy's been dead over 45 years and has people there probably every hour of every day. But what was really neat is this guy pulls up in this red car, jumps out with these, these gloves on, walked around the gravesite, cleaned up all the litter, jumped back in his little red car and drove off. And so to me, what that made me realize is Hendrix had some sort of invisible impact on this person. The guy probably lives nearby and he probably goes there regularly, if not every day, and cleans the litter around Hendrix's gravesite because of the impact that Hendrix has had on him. 
So I share that story when I'm doing a talk on the legacy we can create or the invisible impact we can create. And when I talk to people afterwards, they all come up, like if they come up to talk to me about it, they all can come up with a situation that they relate to. Like somebody that, you know, they were out of the store and somebody did this little thing for them that made all the difference. Or how somebody in their life, their family does stuff like that all the time. Somebody that, you know, picks up litter when they're walking by rather than just ignoring it. And so I, I hope you see where I'm getting at, but there's like a universal element to that situation. Um, you know, in that situation, I never thought it through before, but, you know, the villain could be the litter <laughs> and the hero is <laughs> that guy that's come showing up and cleaning the litter. But either way, within that story, I could add humor if I want it. I could, um, the emotional side, I think, is we can all relate to having somebody that gives back without expecting anything in return. And that's what that guy was doing. So anyway, hopefully that explains the story side of things, but that's how I work with stories. They have to have something that moves a person emotionally. And like I say, it could be making them laugh, could be making them cry or making them think. No, of course. I totally understand. That's, that's like a human connection thing when you tell a story like that. That's, like, that's the beauty of it, I think. Um, and I feel like when you become a storyteller and a good storyteller, you can do a lot, right? You can, you can go very far. Yeah, and it's, you know, the other side too, and this is outside of creating a story, but if we're talking about on a stage, like you said, how do you get your audience involved? A good thing, and this is a, a, I'll give you a double tip here. This is a tip for if you want to know if your mic's turned on, because my first time <laughs> performing stand-up comedy, I, I told my first two jokes without the mic turned on, and so I bombed horribly, and I was covered in sweat, and it was terrible. Oh, and no. so the, <laughs> you know, the mic was off. So now, after being a speaker all these years, I've learned I really need to know if the mic's on. I learned from that one night. And so here's the thing you can do if you want to pull the audience in, but also make sure your mic's turned on. So what you can do is you can start at your talk by asking a question. Very first thing, you don't, it doesn't have to be a question where they say yes or no out loud, but you can say, has anybody in the room ever experienced this? You know, a show of hands, how many people have ever had this happen to them? And all of a sudden what happens is, A, you're making sure the mic's on because if they put their hands up, you know they can hear you. And B, um, you're pulling them in because now all of a sudden there's the relatability. So even if your story, even before you start into your story, they're already relating to you because you know at least somebody in the audience is going to have experienced what you're talking about. That's smart. That's smart. And then wait, another, one, another thing I really wanted to get into, which might connect to stories, is how do you persuade your audience? I feel like that's a very difficult thing, especially nowadays, right? Everyone's very solid in their ideals. And so how do you either use a story or use a speech to direct and guide someone to um, a point you're trying to make or like, you know, persuade them? So really for me, it comes down to this. You have to show them. So I always try to insert this somewhere in every story. There's common beliefs we all, we all believe to be true and nobody can convince us otherwise type thing. But if somebody can prove that belief you've had all your life may not be 100% true, then you're willing to believe and go along for the ride with them. So I'll give you an example of what I mean, creating a habit. So for years, and I believe this, by the way, and until I saw the actual proof, otherwise, I believed this fully, that it takes 21 days to create a habit. What I found out is the guy who actually did the study that discovered this he said that it takes between 21 days and 245 days. And he said, uh, day 66 is when it fully sticks. Day 21 is when it starts. So I was telling people for years that it takes 21 days to create a habit. But if you go by what the guy who actually did the study that we base it all on said, he said that it only starts to be cemented at 21, but it takes 66 days before it's ingrained. 
So if you can demonstrate, you know, maybe you find an audio of the guy saying it, maybe you uh, just even show where he's, where the source where he actually said it, but where if everybody in the audience, and by the way, I'll, I'll ask the question too, how many people here know how long it takes to create a habit? And the hands go up and everybody guesses 20, 21. So if I can say, well, let me prove to you that that's wrong. You know, and, and also I'm not, the big thing is you don't want your audience to think you're attacking them. So I'll say, you know, I thought it was 21 all along, but here's what I've since discovered. And so then I'll show them the 66. So once you've broken down the barrier of the fact that, you know, everything they believe is not necessarily all true, then, and, and you and there's all kinds of things that people believe to be true that weren't true. I mean, over t history of time, there's, you know, there was a belief that uh, one of the generals burnt all the boats at shore. Uh, so that his army couldn't leave. And then that has how they won the war because he said, we have to win this war to go home or we die here because we have no boats to get home. And that whole story has been changed since you know it's been manipulated. So if you can demonstrate that stories people believe have always been true, aren't necessarily true, even that one story, then that's how you get them along to your way of thinking and actually get them to come along for the ride with you and start at least looking at different ways of thinking, which is what opens the door to them actually starting to be persuaded to at least hear your idea out. I've never, I've, I've not thought about it that way either. Thank you. Oh, my I, pleasure. Yeah. Cause what you're kind of doing is like teasing at that curiosity, I think. And when you're like, well, this, you might like, you might not be right. Cause again, like you said, they'll feel a little attacked, but when you go, you might not be right. And then you show them without being mean, right? You show them another way. And that could definitely open up some doors. Well, and the thing I'll add in, because I don't want, you know, anybody to uh, do this, but not, you know, not do it in at least an elegant way for the audience. What I, what the biggest thing for me is people will love it when they can relate to you. And so what you have to do really is you have to, when you share anything like that, you have to say, look, here's, I used to, and, and it has to be true, but if it's true that you used to believe that, you have to share that with them and say, look, I believed it for like five years. And, you know, I always thought that was the case, but here's what I discovered. And so then you're actually, uh, rather than them thinking you're saying to them, you're wrong, you're actually saying, hey, I used to believe the same thing. And then there's the relatability of you're not trying to attack me. You, you're trying to help me learn what you, it took you a lot of years to learn. Yeah. And you're showing like, I understand you. I was there. And then you can lead on to more, and you know, definitely wherever. Thank you for that. And then, and, and then another direction I really wanted to go. You have interviewed so many fantastic people. So many fantastic people. And I want to know, this is another big question that can take any direction. But what have you, what have you learned through everyone? What are common themes that you found through everyone? So this is something, it's one of the, you know, I get this question quite often because of course people want to know, you know, what's, what's the, what are the shortcuts and what are the ways to do this a little bit easier and what are the ways to avoid all the manholes some people have fallen down before you. And so it only makes sense this would be a question that I love sharing on and that I know people love to know about. And Oh, well, well, I, well to me, it's not even like, what's a shortcut? Because I know there's no shortcuts. I think it's interesting to find the themes where like this made everyone like everyone's connected in this way. All these successful people all had this in common. Isn't that interesting? So yeah, but go on. Sorry. No, no, absolutely. And, and you're right. I mean, it's not even that in any of these things that it, it will be a shortcut, but what it does do is if you know the, the common, like you said, the things they have in common, and let's say it's the 1% of people who've impacted millions of lives and they've somehow managed to 
get away from all the distractions we mostly experience and they've somehow managed to do it all and they still have sanity and they still seem to be able to impact a lot of lives. And, and let's say that's the small percentage. If you can know what they do and have in common, if you can apply, let's say three or four of those things and do, do it differently than you're already doing, that technically can be a shortcut because it allows you to start doing the right thing sooner. But excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. I think. No, you're fine. Oh, it disappeared. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so the, the, you're right. I mean, it's not necessarily a shortcut, but if you can find what the, the top achievers are doing and you can start implementing some of those, it's certainly going to make things a little easier for you. And it's certainly going to help you avoid a lot of the stuff that otherwise you may have to learn in the ditches or the trenches. So happy to share, let's say the top three. Uh, so the first one, actually, I'm going in reverse order because I might as well end with the top one, right? There's no point in yeah. starting out with the top one and working and getting to the least popular of the three. So I'll start with the, the one that's uh, of the three. Uh, it's the least common, but it's still the common trait that they share. And so that one is that the top achievers, they know, and I'm going to explain this further, but they know how to go all in. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean is that a time when most of us can't basically break away from our phones or the distractions that are coming to our lives all day, every day, these high achievers, they seem to be able to focus on either the person or their phone or whatever, but they focus on one thing at a time. So if they're with their phone, they're all in with their phone. If they're with a person, they're all in with the person. But what they don't do is they don't type on their phone while they're talking to another person. And, you know, when I say this, it's not a judgment of anybody that does it. It's not saying, you know, you're doing anything wrong. But what I have discovered is they have a really strong ability. Let's call it single tasking. They have a strong ability to go all in and only do one thing at a time. So that way, they're always kind of going at 100% with whatever they're doing. So that would be the, the third most common trait. Yeah. And oh my gosh, like uh, human beings, and there's been so much research behind this, we really do suck at multitasking. We really, really, really do. And so when you have that person that goes all in, and doesn't try to, you know, like you said, talk on the phone or like talk in real life or in juggle like that. That's so much more beneficial. I thought you meant like gambling at first, like a risk, like <laughs> I'm all in with this risk. And I'm like, that might not be smart. But when you take cool, like in a way it's cool. When you take cool risks like that with the, you're gambling your entire time. And that's, I don't know, I think that's like the coolest thing. I'm sorry, you can go on to the next deal. Like, uh, no, that's all good. And, and I mean, the, the thing is, the, the most precious resource we all have, and we're seeing it more than ever before, it is our time, and we're seeing more than ever before that people place more value on their time than anything else. And it, it's, it's funny because uh, I was having this conversation about, you know, things like Uber and, um, and, you know, even people now they're having like flex shifts and stuff like that, where people can, uh, you know, decide to work two hours a night rather than all night and can just kind of go in for a short shift or go with Uber where they just kind of decide when they want to work. And I believe that's because people for the first time in almost history place more value on their time overall. I'm not saying just, you know, some people overall, more people place value on their time than probably at any time before in history. People used to value their money more than time. Not, you know, not again, everybody, but most people. I figure, I feel now it's the exact opposite. So if time's become that precious of a commodity, then if we can figure out how to use it properly, and in this case, like I said, be being able to take some of the power back and say, okay, I'm gonna be all in with my phone now, and sorry, I can't do anything else. But then when I'm with a person, I'm gonna be all in with them. It's not easy to do, but I think that's why the high achievers 
uh, are using this for their success is because they're actually using time to their advantage. So anyway, just to, just to finish off on that third one. Yeah, no, and real, real quick, do you think that we've, uh, how do you put this? Do you think that we value time so much now because we realize that everything's limited and this too shall pass? It's a great, yeah, it's a great question. And I would say there's a really big component to that where people feel, you know what, I don't know how long I have and I don't want to waste it. And so like, like you said, you know, this too shall pass, meaning even our life too shall pass. I think we, we all realize that life isn't unlimited. We don't live forever. And so if we don't, how do you want to use the time you do have? And I do think that people now are viewing it more like, you know, I have this time in front of me right now. I don't, I'm not guaranteed more than this. And so I don't want to spend whatever amount of years doing this one thing that I don't like. And so this all comes back to our point about passion as well, where people want to spend their time doing what they, they feel they were called to do. And I think it's because they look at their time now in a different way than they used to. So yeah, I would say it's because people really feel that we have a limited amount of time. Let's make the most of it. Yeah, that's so cool. Humans are cool like that. <laughs> well, and you know, it's funny. I'm going to share the second one. The first one, I'm gonna, and you'll, you'll understand when I get to it, but the first one I'm going to be able to cover really, really super quickly. So, um, so this one here, this, the second most common trait is basically the importance of going all, you know, going all in with learning now. So different than what I mentioned about going all in with your time, they understand, the high achievers understand the importance of keeping to feed your mind, you know, I call it feeding your mind, uh, mm -hmm. with the wisdom that you need to make things happen. You know, so whether that's listening to shows like this and learning quicker than if you had to learn it on your own, whether that's reading books, whether that's watching TED Talks, I find that the high achievers understand the importance of, let's call it lifelong learning and self-learning. So whereas when I was growing up and going to school, it was like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm forced to do my homework. So I'm just going to do that much learning. And as soon as that's done, I'm not going to look at another book again until the next day. And on the weekend comes, I'm never going to look at a book. I'm never going to watch anything. Like I'm not going to watch anything that's going to be involved with learning. It was all about escaping learning. And what I discovered after I got out of school was that, it, it was really important to keep on finding new ways to learn and self-teach, like teach yourself. And I think that the highest of achievers, regardless of their age now, realize that. And that could be watching TED Talks at a younger age or whatever that looks like. But they understand the importance of continuing to self-learn, self-educate, feed your mind, and figure out the ways to get to that wisdom or knowledge that you need. And also, in doing so, finding a way to ignore all the distractions which could be the information that really doesn't help you at all, you know, the stuff that's just wasting your time, figuring out a way to get past all the stuff that could waste your time to get to the stuff that's really going to help you further with what you're wanting to do. I don't know. Cause I like the, I like the connection to all these, you know what I mean? And I'm like well, to pondering them. Well, I, oh, go ahead. Huh? Oh no. I, I was going to say, uh, the, I guess the one thing too, that's really cool. And I'm going to share the first one in a second, but all three of these, what's really cool, and, and you know, somebody listening, you can pay attention now to the first one and compare it to all three, and you'll see that I'm, you know, in all three of these cases, this is accurate, but you don't have to be, to, to do all three of these, you can start doing them tomorrow. So the cool thing is, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter where you are today, all of these things you can start implementing tomorrow. So what do I mean by that? I mentioned the going all in, so that could mean not always being fixed to your phone and it could be not always being with people like it could be 
being able to avoid the distractions and go all in. Well, you can do that starting tomorrow. It might be hard, but you can turn your phone on silence when you're with somebody. You can, you know, uh, you can send your phone on vibrate. So you know something's coming in, but you put your attention on the person. So you can do that starting tomorrow. There's nothing that could stop you from doing that if you decide you're going to, except for the fact that we, you know, it's, it's obviously an addiction checking our phones because it gives us dopamine. They've proven that. But oh, yeah. you have to get past that if you want to go all in. So you can, the cool thing is you can do it starting tomorrow and it doesn't matter where you were yesterday. The other one, the learning, you can start learning tomorrow. You can watch a TED Talk tomorrow. You can start feeding your mind new information tomorrow. So the cool thing is a lot of people think the common traits are going to be stuff that you have to have certain influences, you have to have certain resources, you have to know certain people or have a certain amount of money. But the cool thing is what I've discovered is these things you can all start doing. You can change your life and start doing these tomorrow. So with that all said, if you want, I can share number one. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. Okay, cool. So number one, this is why, now this is why I said that this one I can share a lot quicker because we already sort of discussed it in a lot of detail, but it's the idea of finding your passion, your purpose, your calling, your why, whatever you want to call it. These high achievers, they have found their passion. They have found their purpose. And then they spend most of their time living, I call it living on purpose, but <laughs> spend most of their time involved in their passion area. And so like I said, we don't have to spend a lot of time on that one because I know we covered it a lot earlier, but that's the most common trait by far and above. So I've rarely seen it that a person can be achieving at the highest level if they're not involved in their passion or their genius zone or their superpower, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they figured out how to do that and they found it and that's how they spend most of their time living in that passion zone. So that's, that's the number one trait. Yeah, no. And, and the cool thing is, is what I've heard from other people is that you don't even have to find your passion. Sometimes you have to work for it. And I think we've covered that too, with having to go out of your comfort zone to do it. And I feel like it's the same concept as love. You know, when you love someone, you, you're infatuated and you're like, oh, you know, you're so, you're so wonderful. You're so wonderful. But after a while that can die, that puppy love will die. But then like either you choose to walk away from that person or you choose this new form of love, this, this working love of, um, of continuation because most people usually stop and the feeling stop and the people that really know how to love someone else keep going when that ends and they keep, I, I don't, I don't even know how to understand it or I have, well, not understand it. I understand it. I don't know how to explain it. Um, you did a good job. And in fact, what you just shared there is wisdom that it takes some people 60 some years to learn. So you're already years and years ahead of the curve. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's, 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 a, it's, I don't want to say it's a labor, right? But it is, um, you keep doing it. You keep working at love. You keep working at a passion because there might be a time where, you know, God forbid, like if you're a skateboarder um, and you know, you love it so fun, you just don't like it one day. Oh, well, guess it wasn't my passion. Oh, no. Let's find <laughs> the next thing. Or, oh, no, I guess this wasn't the person I love. Let's find the next person, right? No, no, this could definitely be your passion. This could definitely be the person of your life, but you have to keep working at it. That's the beauty of it. And that's a great point too. And, and if you think about it, there's a lot of times that why you might not love it anymore is maybe you were, you know, you started this when you're young, like playing piano and you didn't realize that it was because your parents forced you to play piano. <laughs> and maybe your father plays piano. So you're like, well, I guess I'm supposed to. And you forget at some point that I don't like playing piano. I was just forced to do it. And then all of a sudden, five years later, without even knowing, if you started at six, maybe you always thought you loved piano. Maybe it was never your like anyway. And then when you get to a certain age, you're like, I don't really dig this. Maybe it's because somebody talked you into it. So that's another element too. 
you are totally right. You're totally right. And thank you for bringing that into perspective. I haven't thought about that either. You know, sometimes you're set up with things or sometimes you think you like it for a while and you don't. We are, like human beings are so complex and that's so cool. And so like when, what you do is when you find the bridges that people make, right? Like, you know, a lot of successors have this in common or that in common. It's so, it's so wonderful because when you find those common traits, like you can emulate them too. And I think it's super cool that this entire podcast has come back around to a cool circle. Like how you're talking about with the story, start with the end of it. Well, and you know, I have to say, Ava, I'll add in one thing that's really important, I think, is that I was, uh, when I went, you know, I go back to my school years and when I was in high school, I remember I uh, had this teacher and basically, for lack of, I'll, I'll, just, I'll give you the easy story to explain it, but he essentially, I was really bad at chemistry uh, in, in, you know, in science class and I was really good in business. And to this day, I can tell you, still to this day, I'm passionate about business and dislike chemistry. And I'm not trying to say, you know, negative or knock, you know, the school approach to it, but the school I went to and the teacher in general said, well, you're already good at business. So just don't even spend time in it. Just ignore that and just do it easily. You know, just do it because it's easy, but don't spend a lot of time on it. But you need to focus on chemistry because you're no good at it. And what's interesting about that is I've discovered in these interviews that I've done that the highest of achievers, they, don't, they do the opposite of that. If they love something, they spend most of their time doing it. And if they dislike something, they find a way to not do it as much. But yet the school system told me I would never amount to anything if, unless I focused on my weak areas. And so I think it's important to, that's another reason it's probably important to find your passion, but also be willing to pursue it is because if you focus mostly on the areas you're weak at and because you're good at something, you just don't, you just ignore it, then really you're not going to have as much joy, but also you're probably not going to have as much success. Now that's not going to be the case for everybody, but what I can say is for the majority of what I've seen, most of the people that end up having a lot of success, they spend their time in their genius zone or their passion zone doing what they love. And then at the, after they get to a certain age, they figure out a way to not do what they don't like. Yeah, and, and the coolest part about that is your weaknesses, you don't have to focus on because someone else can take that for you. Like maybe you wanted to start a, bez, like a business and you needed a chemist. You Well, now I don't have to do both. I can be the awesome businessman and my friend can be the chemist because he's so good at it. And, and that, yeah, and oh goodness, how do you put it? And that may be his passion, by the way, too. Oh yeah, definitely. And so you have this like empire of passion builders empire of people who constantly learn absolutely and that's the coolest part and thank you so much for being on the podcast we're running out of time where can everyone find you so a couple of ways one you know i mentioned uh that uh you know talking about finding your why and your purpose so i, I actually uh, just put a book out if people want to at least learn more about it or check it out it's thebookofwhy.com and uh, we're releasing it in uh, February. But as a, as a freebie, if somebody wants a, a free book they want to check out, we actually um, released a, our book Enlightened a couple of years ago. And we set up a page where people can grab a free copy if they want. Um, so that page is it's called uh, Let's Do Influencing. Dot com and if you go there basically the only way we can deliver you know a free digital book is if a person signs up but I always say you know if you want the free book sign up and then you can basically sign back out two seconds later you can sign back off but just get your free book um, so that's where I send people as well and then my main website is thatspeakerguy.com that's awesome thank you so much and thank you so much for being on the podcast I really enjoyed having you on uh, it was my pleasure 
Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you like what we're doing, please help us grow by sharing our content. And if you have any recommendation for future guests, please email me at agwetrick at gmail.com.